There you go, you're on the air, dear. Thank you so much. I think, yes. Probably the uh, most important thing is, um, can you hear me? Yes. Alison, your mic sound check, if you can hear me, most people can. Marvellous. Um, so uh, when Angie woke, uh, came up to me just before the service and said, are you preaching? I said, well, <laughs> I think that's a little ambitious term today. Um, we've had a big uh, family Beano because uh, Joanna, who's my fourth daughter, it was her birthday last week and my third daughter is in a couple of days' time. So we've had a room house full, have we not, Jo? Um, and therefore I confess that um, what you're about to hear are musings. I think Jo will attest that some of this was written whilst putting a grandson through the bath last night. So. I, I think it's not preaching, it's just some thoughts on, on the reading. Um, and I think this reading that Anne read so beautifully has some of the harshest words that we in the 21st century can hear Jesus say. Um, he says, leave the dead to bury the dead, and he means by that, leave the spiritually dead to bury the dead. And what he's basically saying to people is, if you want to follow me, you have to leave your current lives. And it's not simply that, as he also goes on to say, um, you can't look back at your families and friends. If you wish to follow me, you have to follow me in its entirety. And the very last line of the reading that Anne read, I'll also come back to at the end of this talk, which is, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And I'll come back to that. So he's basically saying the son of man is homeless on this planet. And I'll come back to what I think and others think he's meaning by that. Now, all of this, these are very, very difficult words for us to understand in a 21st century context of the Church of England faith. Um, most of us are not faced, thank goodness, with either all decisions about our faith. Uh, we are not asked to abandon loved ones, um, leave our families, or bury the dead without us present. We, we aren't faced with those choices. And for most of us here today, I suspect our faith slips happily into our everyday lives. It, it, it trots alongside us or within us in a very pleasant alignment. Uh, it, it isn't problematic for us. Uh, it's a taken for granted feature of the lives that we have. We've got a dog with us today, which is also very exciting. So um, our faith doesn't present us with the decisions that Jesus harshly suggests these disciples are going to have to make. And of course, with all the scripture readings, what we've got to do is put this in context. And the context is that Jesus knows that he is going to be killed. And he knows that the apostles are going to be left on their own. Uh, and he's trying to increase their resilience and their resolve before he's killed in order that the ministry can continue to be delivered. 
Um, in other words, it was really time for these disciples to toughen up. You know, they've been trotting along behind him for some time. They had to actually confront the harsh reality of what was being asked of them. And what was being asked of them, her resilience that was being asked of them, is nothing, I mean, absolutely nothing like a vicar being asked to deliver three services a day. You know, I mean, a vicar has to work hard now, but, you know, three services a day are, are taxing, uh, you know, you might be physically exhausted at the end of it. But what was being asked of these people is extraordinary. I mean, if you think about it, they were being asked to become social activists. You think Extinction Rebellion protesters. You think the anti-apartheid protesters in South Africa. That is actually what was being asked of these people. And that is why Christ was so harsh in his resolve. It would have been the same with Mandela, it is the same with the Extinction Rebellion people. They are asked, in effect, to commit their entire lives. Um, and their lives were not going to be easy, and the lives of their successors were not going to be easy. Because the truth is that at that point, to establish the Christian faith on earth was going to be dangerous, difficult, and daunting. And in the words of the lovely hymn, you know, he who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. There's no discouragement would make him once relent his one avowed intent to be a pilgrim. So we know that the early apostles often met in people's homes, often secretly and in risk of persecution. The early apostles had to become like missionaries, leaving their homes behind. And they really did need that Holy Spirit to keep them going as an evangelizing force, operating often in direct opposition to the authorities in whichever countries they were living or traveling through. So this picture Jesus paints in the gospel reading of abandoning all that you know and have loved and held fast to follow Christ was a true prophecy of the lives that the apostles and all other pilgrims had to live in order for Christianity to take hold across the world. They were being asked to forge a new path for others to follow without looking back, just as he uses the analogy of a plough. When you're ploughing a furrow through the field, Jesus says you don't look back, you look forwards. And so they were being asked to leave all behind in order to plough this furrow. And they were being asked to create new paths all over the world, much as missionaries are still asked to do today. Um, so this got me thinking about these evangelising missionaries and the sort of lengths they would go to to spread Christianity. And John and I were in the west coast of Ireland um, a few weeks ago. Um, we became fascinated by the story of Coptic monks travelling to the west coast of Ireland um, from originally Alexandria. And apparently, and I didn't know this, but the Irish uh, monastic tradition means that actually once you're also in Ireland, 
you are required to do penitential exile. So not only have you, you know, spread the gospel from Alexandria, once you're there, you're also at some point expected to go off somewhere else. Um, and they would travel to isolated places in boats. Um, and again, whilst we were in the West Coast, we were in this area around Teelin, T-E-E-L-I-N. Um, and apparently around Teelin, there's a legend of two boatloads of monks leaving Ireland who were never heard of again. Until um, in the 1940s, a professor at Reykjavik University found an old monastic manuscript which described a journey of monks coming from Ireland. And the uh, two academics went back to Tilin and sort of went around the, the sort of remnants of the Coptic faith there. And yes, were able to you know, confirm that these two things added up, that actually these monks had left the west coast of Ireland and actually gone and got as far as Iceland. Anyone know how many miles away Iceland is from Ireland? A thousand miles. A thousand miles. And you think about the, I mean, you know, the, you think about that, that, that journey up the west coast um, and over to Iceland. I mean, absolutely extraordinary courage. And in doing that, they believed that this is what was required of them. And in fact, the monks arrived in 795. And in fact, Iceland is the only country in the world whose first inhabitants were Orthodox Christian monks. I mean, quite extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely <coughs> extraordinary. But more recently, I mean, I remember the shock waves that went through our family when I was still young, I was still at school. And my father's youngest brother, Ernest, um, announced that, um, this is um, early 1970s, that he and his wife were going off to Zaire, previously known at that stage as the Belgian Congo, as uh, missionaries. And Ernest was a dentist, and he and Dorothy uh, went out with the Baptist Missionary Society. Um, we were, just within my father's family, we really believed in diverse worship because they were Baptists. <laughs> My, my aunt and another uncle were Presbyterian and we were the Church of England branch. So, you know, within one family, we, we have many different branches. Um, now, for various reasons to do with their father dying young, my father and his siblings, and this brother in particular, were very, very close. And my father was the father substitute within their family. And in fact, <laughs> we were so close that they chose, they first of all lived about, um, I don't know, half a mile from us. And then they chose to come and live. Uh, Ernest and Dorothy came to live on the same road in which we lived. So you can imagine how close these two families were. Um, and um, this family was very different from ours. We always used to laugh at Christmas um, that we had to, on Boxing Day, we used to share Christmas and Boxing Day every single year. <laughs> and they'd come to us at Christmas Day and we'd go to them for Boxing Day. 
Um, my parents used to go, come on, tank up on the sherry, because we're not going to get any alcohol when we get to Ernest and Dorothy. So we were really, really different uh, as family, but very, both families very, very close. Um, and whilst Ernest was an army, had been an army medic in the Second World War as a dentist, they weren't great travellers. I mean, I assure you, if they were here today, they were some of the quietest, simplest, plainest people you can imagine. Um, there was not a lot of frivolity in the house, and that their main activity was to go to church. And so the idea, and I, I want you just to remember the Belgian Congo, which had just recently been named Zaire, it's most brilliantly painted, if any of you have read the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which is a story about actually American missionaries out in the Belgian Congo. I mean, it's a very, very difficult life that they were going to. And so at that time, the idea of them going there was absolutely incomprehensible. I didn't really understand it. I didn't really understand what's going on. I was probably preoccupied with myself. It was incomprehensible to my mother. I remember her saying, this is preposterous. <laughs> and then it was a bit more understandable for my father, but it was really difficult for their daughters, uh, who had no idea that their parents were going to go. One had just started at nursing college in London, at Tommy's or whatever, and the other one was married and had just literally had their, for her first baby. And her parents, who up till that point, had been devoted. I mean, the family and church were the things that made them tick. Um, I mean, they, they found it absolutely extraordinary, and they went. Um, and yesterday, to, to, to illustrate the sort of impact it had in the family, I texted my cousin, Alison, uh, who is the one who had just had, you know, married and had a baby. She's a very devout Christian herself, still worships at the Baptist church. Um, where her parents worshipped. And I asked which year they'd left, and she took her two minutes to respond. And she said, they left in 1972 when my eldest child had just been born, and it was clearly a, a moment in her life was which writ large in her mind. And neither she nor her sister Christine saw them for two years, because, you know, to go out of the Belgian Congo was impossible at that time, and they weren't in Kinshasa. Um, and they felt a higher calling, like the apostles were being asked. This is literally, you know, leave your family, turn your back, and go out there for two years. Now, the, for most of us, the nearest any of us actually get to leaving loved ones in pursuit of God's mission is the act of pilgrimage. And when my husband was physically stronger, he walked a fair old part of the famous Compostela de Santiago with a Catholic friend. And they would recite passages from the Bible, reflect and pray en route, and John said they got real comfort, not just from each other's company, but from the company of others en route and the sense of shared endeavour. And in his study, as Joe will attest, that, you know, there's a certificate framed to show that he did this pilgrimage. You've probably done it as well. Um, and Robert McFarlane, the writer, if you know him, Mountains of the Mind or the Old Ways, um, he walks very obscure and hidden paths. And he's got this lovely phrase about pilgrimages, 
where he says, for pilgrims walking, every footfall is doubled, landing at once on the actual road, but also at the same time on the path of faith. Isn't that lovely? Sort of, so you've got a physical uh, path and a walk, and you've got then a faith, a, a path of faith. So what Christian paths do we create in our everyday lives that others may follow? Well, for me, I think most of us who have children, we bring up our children in the Christian faith. Uh, and we support acts of Christian love in the community. And in that way, we are making paths around this community and in our families. And we're also following paths that our grandparents or our parents hopefully created uh, for us to follow. But in a challenging perspective, some theologians actually see that all Christian people in this world are essentially nomads. And that that means people without a home. We are nomads, we are wandering this world only in order to prepare for our homecoming when we meet God in heaven. So that in actual fact, this is just a nomadic existence before we actually get to our real home in heaven. And the German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote The Cost of Discipleship, describes how God's people should view their existence in the world as perpetual nomads whose real allegiance is to a higher authority and home in heaven. And he says, here on earth, the church community lives in a foreign land. It's a colony of strangers far away from home, a community of foreigners enjoying the hospitality of the host country in which they live, obeying its laws, honoring its authorities, and with gratitude, it makes use of what is needed to sustain the body and other areas of earthly life. But it's merely passing through. And at any given moment, it might hear the call to move on, and then it will break camp, leaving behind all worldly friends and relatives, and following only the voice of the one who has called it. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that's what Jesus was meaning. This is a nomadic existence. And actually, the true home is in, with God, the Father in heaven. And so to conclude, uh, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, has written, keeping our eyes on journey's end is what we need. The place where we see at last the world that is greater than the world the new creation that cannot be contained in present thought or social order or piety. So whilst I certainly cannot, I'm afraid, contemplate leaving my family behind for God, I think we should thank those who did so in those early years in order to establish this Christian church as we know it today. And I think in our prayers today, we should also give thanks for those who continue to take the trials and tribulations of missionary work on across the world. 
And hopefully we will find that our whole lives will have been some kind of pilgrimage, which leads to a higher place with a higher sense of being, uh, which we will surely know when we see him and he welcomes us to our spiritual home in heaven. So those are my few thoughts for today. So thank you. Can you switch this off? <laughs> Stand and we'll say the creeds together.